Hi, everybody. Mike Hancock here. I'm the chairman of the Circle of Excellence group of companies, which includes worldwide business intelligence, the banner you can see behind me if you're watching this on the video. Today, I'm talking with somebody who I originally met. We just worked out in about December 2006 um, when I was in London running a weekend event and, and Leon Arts was in the audience there. Now, good morning or good. Yeah, it is good morning for you, Leon. How are you good doing good today? I'm very good, thank you. And you? Oh, I'm, I'm fantastic, thank you. But I, I want to go back to that time because mm -hmm. I'd been on the road. I remember that very specifically. I'd been on the road for probably about uh, three weeks then, mainly in Asia, and I was rounding off my tour in London. And um, as I flew into London, I looked out the plane and I thought, gee, there's a lot of clouds over this city. I mean, it's London. What do you expect? There's a lot of clouds. And then I went, oh, crap, it's not clouds, it's snow. But I hadn't brought any sort of jacket with me because I'd been in oh, Asia wow. for like three or four weeks. Yeah. So I just literally had shirts. And I got off the plane and, and Glenn Carlson, who you know, who was my promoter there, picked me up and said, where's your jacket? <laughs> I don't have one. So we had to run up in Heathrow and buy me a jacket before we got out of Heathrow. That was my, that was my start to that yeah. trip. But that's enough about me today. Um, we're here to talk about you. You were born in, in, in Holland. I want to start by digging into your entrepreneurial journey. But let's go back before that. When was the first time that you thought that you might become an entrepreneur and what was the idea you had at the time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess, you know, when I was, my, my parents always had their own business. So, you know, it was in the family and they started their business in the 60s when entrepreneurialism, especially in Holland, was nowhere near, you know, as popular as it is now, there was nowhere near as much support. And I definitely, you know, as a, as a young child, seen their journey with all the ups and downs. And um, I remember always my parents, respecting my parents uh, hugely for it and liking the freedom of it. And, um, but as, a, as, you know, since I was eight, and of course this is in hindsight, and, and as a teenager, I was very much searching to prove myself. And um, when I was 19, I went to a management college because I wanted to learn management, music management. In those days, there was no such course for that. And in, during that first year, you had to do some time in a kitchen. And um, I thought I'm going to hate this because, you know, I, I loved food and I was a bit overweight at the time, but um, I couldn't even boil an egg. And um, <laughs> anyway, I had to go in the kitchen for only 30 hours and I thought, well, I'm going to hate it, but, you know, I can survive 30 hours. But long story short, I stayed in the kitchen for a long time and because um, I, I realized I can prove myself in that something inside myself told me you can you can excel in this. So that became my thing. And after a few years working in kitchens, first whilst doing college and going abroad, um, I realized the best way for me to prove myself is by starting my own business. So I was early 20s, probably, when I uh, dreamt of my first own business, which I started when I was 26. And uh, what was that business? That was a restaurant, yeah. So I, uh, my aim was to become one of the best restaurants in the Netherlands to prove that I could be that I could be good at something. You know, that was my mindset at the time. I thought that I wasn't good in things. And um, yeah. So that leads into an interesting question, because that mindset that you had um, is really essentially an imprint that came from somewhere. 
Yeah. Like you weren't born with that mindset. So, you know, you may be able to identify now with all the, the personal development work that you've yeah. done, where that mindset came from. But those are the things um, that, you know, for many of us who, have, who are entrepreneurs, stop us from doing things and sometimes the other way, drive us to do things just to prove to ourselves that we can, even though they might not be the right things for us. What um, do you know where that mindset came from, and was that a driving force for you, or how did it work? Uh, it was a driving force, and I know where it came from. Of course, I was a lot older when I realized, but I can see that moment that it, it came to me. You know, it, you know, it's still in, in front of me as, as I look at you know my apartment here. Um, so I was eight years old, and uh, we went to you know I come from a village next to Maastricht, and then you know in the sixties. We, you know, we went to play football with the boys from the other side of the village, which we didn't like because they came from the other side. And of course, that's weird and odd and all those kind of things in your <laughs> mind. And um, anyway, my we started to pick teams and my friends who I really like, and we were really good friends, but the, I mean, I've always been rubbish at football. I still am. And um, my friends wanted to win that game, of course, and they started picking teams and they chose me as, as almost the last. You know, there was one boy which was worse than me. And that hurt me so much because I thought, why do you choose boys which are we don't like, which, you know, and I'm your friend. Why don't you choose me? But of course, I took that as they don't like me. But of course, they just wanted to win football, had nothing to do with liking me. And I, you know, I can see the field. The field is not there anymore, but um, there was trees. It was a sunny day like today. And um, I took that. I, you know, what I took out of that was I'm going to prove to you that I'm that I, you know, that uh, I'm good at something. And that became a self-fulfilling prophecy for many, many years. So that became my driving force to prove that I was good. Because I thought when you're good, you're liked. Or when you have success, you're liked and you have friends. Of course, <laughs> I was totally wrong. But, you know, yeah, it ruled my life for a long time. You know, Leon, I, uh, I picked a tarot card recently. Actually, it wasn't a tarot card, but it was a card. And... Um, you know, it was a life purpose card. And Landy, my partner, whom you know, because yeah. we, we all met together in London a couple of years ago, she picked her life purpose card and it was love. And when we read the card, yeah. it said, all you have to do your whole life is be Landy and you will exude love. And I went, wow, that's really cool. And it's really easy, right? All she has to do is be herself. So I picked my card and my card was conflict. <laughs> and when I read the card, it said, you have to push back at everything that pisses you off your whole life. And I looked at my life and I thought, oh, my goodness, that's what I've been doing my whole life. And I think it comes from in my youth as a, as a sports person. I was really good at a lot of sports, ball sports, not balanced sports. But I, I was always picked as the vice captain, as vice captain of the cricket team, vice captain of the football team, et cetera, et cetera. But I was never made captain. I always thought to myself. Why aren't they picking me as captain? I'm better than that person at doing, making decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So that in my life really got me to put my hand up for leadership roles. And it's amazing how this stuff influences you. So let's go back to the restaurant yeah. in the Netherlands. How did it turn out for you after, after running it for a while? Um, it, was, it was always a struggle. You know, I didn't see it like that every day. And, you know, the restaurant industry at the, at the highest level, which we were performing, is like that. You know, you try to make every dish better. You know, you worry about the, the, the candles and the, the, the china and the cutlery. And 
you know, I, I became one of the best chefs. In the, this is in the 90s of the Netherlands at the time. And sometimes I would be invited to an event where, let's say, there was other 15 top chefs. Of course, it's difficult to imagine, but, you know, cooking was not like it is now and all these TV shows and things like that. I mean, we'd be in a room with, say, 15 chefs. And then they said, oh, Leon, I came to eat in your restaurant and that dish is amazing. But I didn't hear that. I heard, yeah, but your restaurant has a, has a Michelin style and I don't have one yet. Or your restaurant is more beautiful. Totally forgetting that I was doing it with my own money, you know, on my own back. While the other guy might be the head chef in a huge five-star hotel where money was no object. You know, that's not how I looked at it. Because, of course, you have to be better. And um, so, yeah, that drove me. So you, was, you were never, ever happy because I tried to be someone who I was not. And when did that all change for you? And well, what was the what was the pivot point? So it changed, you know, after my restaurant, I had another business, but it changed in the restaurant. Because, you know, I always say when people ask, I, I don't have an addictive personality. I never have been addictive to, to drugs or alcohol or anything like that. But this is in a way it's similar because you all once you prove yourself in one thing, you you need you have the need to prove yourself in something else. So Two and a half years into my own restaurant, the two best chefs of the Netherlands, kind of the godfather of Dutch old cuisine, came to my restaurant to eat. And they asked me what age I was. And I said, so I was, um, I think I was 27 at the time. And um, they said, uh, so I said 27. And they said, wow, then you're better than we were at that age. Of course, they couldn't have given me a bigger compliment than that. Because I thought, you know, hearing that from Cass and Robert, and in, my, in hindsight, in my mind, chefing was over because I've proven it. It wasn't about being full every night, making a lot of money. You know, we, you know, financially, we were struggling because, you know, it is at that level anyway. But for me, it was about proving myself. And then um, I, in hindsight, I know that I lost the interest for chefing then. And it became in a struggle. And then we gave up the restaurant and then... You know, a few years later, I, I felt I had to prove that I could be a good businessman. I felt I'd, prove, I'd proven that I was a good chef, but I hadn't proven the business side of it. So, of course, that opportunity comes my way. And I, um, I lived in England before. So my restaurant was in Holland. Um, and I find this uh, opportunity to come to England and to start selling fine foods to the top restaurants in London. So what do you do? You move your family uh, from uh, Amsterdam to London and start a business. You know, that's just what I did without thinking a lot about it. It all happened in like a month. And um, right. because I wanted to prove that I had a good business. And only after five years of that business, I realized, and actually that was at EBS Masters, I realized that I was trying to prove myself. Yeah. And I think a lot of us listening to this call feel this as well. And I know... Um, you know, Lundy's father, who reached the top of his industry, which was in financial services, he was given the biggest award in South Africa, always ingrained on her as a child. Um, whenever you're at the top, step out. Whenever you've got, and it's hard to do. So um, I know like at the Global Speakers Summit in 2018, uh, which was held in Auckland, you know, which has speakers from all around the world. There was like 25 countries there, et cetera, et cetera. I won every award and yeah. it was embarrassing. The first time they called my name out, I was like thrilled. Then came the second one. I'm going, oh crap. Okay. And then I went up and then came the third one, which was the third award. And then I got that as well. And, 
And the third one, I felt embarrassed. I was actually embarrassed getting up off the chair. And after that, we said, no more. If anybody nominates us for any more awards or anything that we know about, we're not accepting because we just felt it was enough. And I know that one of our clients, you don't know him, Leon, but many on this call do, Elias Canaris, um, in the speaking world, he became the global speaking president. I mean, it's a billion dollar industry and he was at the top of it. So the year after he became president, he said, I'm getting out of the speaking industry. I've done it. Yeah. I reached the top. There's nothing more for me. Right. So and that's a hard decision to do because you get addicted to the lifestyle or the awards or the fame or call it what you want or the money for some some people, depending on the industry. But, you know, if you're a rugby player or a sports person, there comes a time where you, you know, you're just not needed anymore. Doesn't matter if, you know, Michael Jordan wouldn't get a game these days. So so how did you reframe your own life and then get this idea which was in many ways to feed the world where did that come from well so so i went to london started a business and grew that you know we doubled up turnover for five years every year i i just set a target and we went for it i remember after a year i wanted to grow my business and my i spoke to my accountant how are we going to finance that and he came up with some some ways to finance the growth of the business and I never thought about it. I, and he said, um, so what do you think you turn over next year? And I hadn't thought about that for one second. So I felt this number coming into my head and I mentioned that number. So he said, okay, you know, this was 2002. You know, you, I don't think you could get away with that nowadays. But um, a year later, you know, almost to the pound, we did that number. And that made me realize, oh, wow, you know, you got some skills different than, um, you know, shopping a vegetable. and." Um, I always known that I've been intuitive. My mom, who passed many years before that, was like that as well, and my grandmother. And um, but of course, when you get into your head, you you forget about that. So that was sort of the beginning of getting back to that. And then when I was a chef, I was very intuitive. I used to put a plate on the pass when and the waiters picked it up. I knew what the people were going to say about it. But of course, I was too much trying to prove myself. Anyway, so slowly doing my business in London. I start realizing, you know, there was more. And um, after a few years, I he was really struggling with the way we do business with each other. The, the hospitality industry, the food industry is very much knife edge. And people, there is no, um, how do you say that? There's no generosity or, you know, there's no, um, you know, when they can get products somewhere else for a pound, a, a kilo or cheaper, they leave you. Although, you know, you've been working with each other for years and that's, the way we do business with each other was totally not aligned with how I was. And I always thought, because, you know, remember, I thought I wasn't good enough. I thought it's me not understanding it. All these people think it's normal. It must be me. And one day, and that was um, August 2007, when, when we were in Bali doing, you know, the EBS. So I uh, was I went to EBS because I won the previous one together with Daniel, as you remember. And um, yep. I was sitting there and I was, you know, seven mentors, 12 business people like myself from all over the world trying to make your business better and bigger. And I, my hat just said, you don't belong here. You're not good enough. You don't belong. And um, that was really becoming excruciating. And, you know, my, my uh, throat was uh, blocking up and I really didn't want to be there. And um, um, 
you know, then, uh, and oh yeah, during that event, I was asked twice to um, share my story. So I started sharing, come from a small village, been a chef, have this business in London. And at the time, my business in London was really struggling. I was selling to all the top London restaurants, to some American restaurants. So, you know, like Thomas Keller and things like that. But we were really struggling. Things were going wrong. And, um, you know, the universe normally gives you... Um, First gives you a warning, then a slap in the face, and then it's the juggernaut. And I could feel the juggernaut coming. And I knew for a long time that I had to get out of that business. Anyway, doing that twice, that all of you asked me, share your story. I started thinking, why do they want to hear my story? What? And everyone loved it. But of course, I was the only one who didn't. And then I realized on the way home, actually, on the plane home, which had many, many delays, and I was flying, I gave myself a present to fly business class at the time. And um, so I had a lot of time to think. And I realized, Leon, why you know that you can achieve anything you want? Why are you then unhappy? Why do you make it so difficult for yourself? Because I felt every time I came to success, I broke it down. It's almost as if I didn't want it. And of course, internally, I did want it. So um, basically, I came home and I said to my wife, we're going to stop with the business. And the only thing she said was yes, because she understood. Of course, later we spoke about it more. So this was a Sunday. On the Monday, I rang my accountant and said, Gary, oh, no, financial director, sorry, who was part-time to us. I said, Gary, we need a chat. And, you know, he was free the day later. And I said, I want to stop. And he said, don't be silly. Um, you know, why? And I explained a little bit to him. And he said, no, no, give me a year. We sell the business and you can make actually very good money. And I said, no, I had enough. I can't do this anymore. And six weeks later, we closed the business because we could, we didn't sell it. We, we didn't find someone so quickly. And this is the, you know, people always ask me, what's the one decision that you made that changed your life? Then I tell this story. It is not one decision. It's, you know, one, you know, it's, it's a journey, but people want to hear that. And act, to be honest, that was then I said that was the best decision I ever made. So I lost honestly millions of pounds because what my business would be worth if you hadn't made the sales ready. And I ended up with not a lot, but I could be me again. And it wasn't till after we closed the business when people started ringing us that I realized how good our business was. We never realized because we were always fighting to be better and you know in the struggle. And so this is what 14 years ago. And, you know, I stepped out of the struggle, you know, and uh, so, yeah, and then I started working on myself and on giving back. So just before we go into what what's going to happen now, uh, it's great to have a, a, a lot of uh, people on the call today, the live as well, listening to your story. If you've got any questions, type in the chat. We'll have time for questions later on. But um, Leon, you seem to be somebody who you've had these imprints mm -hmm. and I think we all have our imprints. We all have our blind spots. We all have our undercurrents and we all have the tunnels or the ways in which we see the world. And it takes sometimes things like what happened to you to break those down and get us to see them a different way. But the, the overriding thing that I, that I'm hearing here is the amount of value you place on your intuition. And I remember some of uh, the people on this call know this, but I remember with one of uh, uh, the billionaires I met once many years ago, 10 years ago, and he said to me, Mike, do you know the difference between a billionaire and a millionaire? And I said, no. He said, billionaire has three things. They're far more intuitive. 
they have a bigger network and they make decisions far more quickly. He said, that's it. That's the only difference. He said, millionaires take too long to make decisions and they go and, and check things out and do all this due diligence stuff. And he said to me at the time, he said, I'm getting old because I just bought a five-star hotel and it took me 10 minutes to make the decision. I've never taken that long to make a decision in my life. Yeah. And this is a guy who was actually born in a township just outside of Cape Town and he was poor, but uh, he's a billionaire these days. So your intuition um, has developed and developed and developed. So what's your, what's your guide for using your intuition now? How does it work with you now? It's, it, you know, it goes, of course, you know, you, we all have intuition. It's just a choosing to listen to it. So it, it's a, my guide is just trusting it. I know, and intuition, sometimes it screams out at you. Sometimes it feels like a, a little bit of wind which comes past you. You have, you know, you're speaking to someone and you get this inkling. And I just trust that those things come, that they're right. And um, my mom, who passed away many years ago when I was still a chef, and I remember having a chat with her and she told me, Leon, you're very good in your intuition. And I said, yeah, I know. But, and I, cause I asked her something which happened in the family, which I intuitively, I had a different idea about. And she said, so she said this to me, I said, yeah, but how do I know? And she said, just start training it. And I tell people this every week I speak to someone about it. You know, it's like going to the gym. When you go to the gym and you want to get fit, it takes time and it takes effort and it takes training. With your intuition, it's exactly the same. Start listening to it. And sometimes your mind tells you to do something else. And then, you know, just make a little note, mental note, say, oh, my intuition said that. And then later refer back to it. And as you do that more and more, you just gain more confidence. And, you know, it guides me in everything. You know, I, I'm, I'm Dutch. I'm a cyclist. I'm one of the crazy people who cycles through London, which is, to be honest, very dangerous at times. But, you know, sometimes I... Um, I think, okay, how shall I cycle home? Because, you know, in a big town like London, there's many routes home. And then I just follow my intuition. And then often then you bump into someone you needed to see for some reason. You know, it's so beautiful. And when you start to have those kind of things, it's not that difficult. And everyone can do it. Absolutely. And do you feel, I've got a couple of questions here, but this is the one that's popping up right now. I'll shove the one that popped up before to the back. Do you feel that um, the entrepreneurs listening to this call, do you feel that there's some guidance you can give them for using their intuition more readily or trusting in it more? Because most of the ways we were educated was to, you know, do your numbers, do your math, you know, think, think things through instead of feel things through. Yeah, well... So what I did when I stopped my business in 2007, I uh, really decided, you know, it's time for me. So I started to really uh, work on my practices. And that was, you know, meditating, making sure that I'm calm inside. And that still to this day is so important to me. Like, uh, you know, I meditate every day and well, 99 out of 100 at least. Um, you know, I, someone taught me this technique to really focus on your senses. And um, I still do that at times because, you know, it's about quieting that voice in, um, in your head. So when you listen to your senses, when you focus on your five senses, that voice can't be there. It's impossible. And I did that for a long, long time. So let's say you have a business meeting later today or maybe tomorrow, depending on where you are. 
And we all, we all do that. You sit in a meeting or with your children or your partner, and then your mind goes somewhere else. You know, she's telling you a story or your, your child is telling you something and your mind goes, oh, um, I need to make this email. I have to prepare for my talk. Um, you know, I have to go grocery shopping, whatever you think. At the moment, when you live in a meeting with someone, you can't do all those things anyway. So when you have the ability to quiet that voice and be totally present, well, yeah, now we call it living in the moment, but be totally present for that person opposite you, then magic happens. And I learned that, you know, about 10 years ago. And of course, it's, it's like going to the gym. It's a practice. But then always the right opportunity comes up. But let's say I used to go to business meetings and people told me that when you go try, focus on what you get, want to get out of the, the, you know, you want to get a sale out of the meeting, focus on that sale. And actually, that's totally the wrong thing. First of all, if you present and listen to that person, they will tell you what they need. And then a, a lot bigger opportunity will most of the time show up. You don't even need to. After I sold my, stopped my business, I didn't sell it. Um, I had a meeting like two years later with a very good friend of mine. And he, a um, very wealthy friend, business person. And I had to ask him a question. I was working on a project and I needed some money for it. Not a lot, but, you know, I was so nervous about asking him. And anyway, he came to London. We met up by the station and I was so nervous asking him. And, I, you know, I, I, I just, and, you know, I was postponing the question. And then, you, you know, you're getting to the end of the meeting. But at the same time, I was just asking him questions and he was just telling me. And I thought during the meeting, I said, wow. This is perfect. He says exactly the things what I want to do my project about. And so at, right at the end, I had enough courage because I thought he's going to get up in a sec to ask him for like 15,000 pounds as a loan. And he just went, yeah, sure. That's not a problem at all. You know, so I realized I was nervous for, for nothing. And, um, you know, when you have those kind of moments, then, you know, more and more shows up. And when you really live your into your intuition the speed of manifesting is so fast you won't believe it and that's the thing i think uh, that's the great lesson in this for for everybody is intuition and use the other word which is a, a word that uh, we use a lot which is presence and yeah. um you know when we when we started researching what gives an entrepreneur x factor one of the four pillars of that was the ability to be present because I can't tell you over the years how many people I've talked to or interviewed where I have the answer to their problem and I try and give them the answer, but because they're not present, they yeah. don't hear it. And I've almost got to go, hey, wake up. I'm actually giving you the answer to the question you want to know, but they're just not present. So they miss it. And it's, it, it never ceases to amaze me. Let's, uh, let's move on. When, when we met, you were really moving into the social entrepreneurship space from, you know, trying to build the greatest restaurant in Holland to really looking at helping and assisting people. What was the trigger point there that got you into wanting to help and assist people? And then what was the concept? So, yeah, I've done a few concepts. I don't know which one you want to hear. So, um the first one well, was, give me the give me the sort of the the timeline of how it's developed so i stopped the business in 2007 and 2009 of course i had a few other ideas but i started um a social enterprise called fill the cup where we started to re, um, uh, raise funds for children in developing countries through the power of sharing a meal 
where every time when you would buy a meal for yourself, you would pay 20 pence, 25 dollar cents extra, and you would feed a child in a developing country. And, um, you know, I did, I, after a year, I was contacted by the World Food Program. I thought, you know, because they do that kind of thing, that would be after a few years, and they contacted me. So that became, in Holland, a very um, popular concept. Now, think, you know, now we have more of those. But, you know, 10, 11 years ago, there was hardly anything doing it. And I learned a lot. And that, um, I, you know, we got stuck a lot. The World Food Program wasn't supporting us. They wanted us as volunteers to do great, and they were very happy. But, you know, it's too bureaucratic and politi political. And um, so I learned a lot. I did that. We did that for five years. It came to a national end. And then the, my next project was, um, I don't, you know, I don't know where you all are in the world, but um, the refugee crisis, uh, which we started in 2015, there was a big uh, refugee camp in Calais in France, right where the Euro tunnel is to go to England. And um, I was asked to go and help there. And um, that was, you know, the universe conspiring. I met a guy a few months before that, just once in a house. We had a chat and um, a few months, I wanted to help with the refugee crisis and I was figuring out what to do. I had some time and all of a sudden I have a Facebook message from this guy who I met once saying, Leon, we want to start a kitchen in the jungle. That's the name of the camp in Kelly. And we thought of you to help. And so I sent him a message back, sure, Jonathan, what can I do? And then I realized he didn't know I used to be chef. So I messaged him back and I said, Jonathan, did you know that I used to be chef? And he said, no, we had no idea. So we go, ha, ha, ha. Two weeks later, I land in the harbor of Kelly. And yeah, that changed my life. Um, that I mean, we can talk for a few hours just about that. That, that I always say, I did a TED talk on this and I said it was like going back to the Middle Ages. Um, the camp was built on a tip. There were 6,000 people at the time, which grew to about 11,000 within the next six weeks. And um, I thought I got a few weeks time. We go and cook for a few weeks and then the government's got their act together and all this will be over, which, well, we know it hasn't. But um, I was there. We, we Someone... Uh, bought a marquee and we put three burners on the ground and we thought we we're going to do like 200 meals a day and have a bit of fun and connect with the, the refugees there. And um, yeah, you know, within two weeks, we were doing 1100 meals a day. And that was really two capacity breakfast, lunch and dinner, working very hard. The most amazing things were happening, um, but it was tough. You know, there were 16 nationalities in the camp which is, you know, a challenge by its own. In normal refugee camps, that's one of maximum two nationalities. So there was a lot of problems within the refugees as well, historically. And I walked around there um, one day and I thought, we were, so we were doing 1,100 meals a day, which was only a drop in the ocean. Uh, there, was, there was hunger. Um, the camp was deemed illegal. So there was many, many problems. And I was walking around and I thought, you're not here to cook. Everyone can cook. I, I want to do more. I want to feed everyone. And I heard this voice, and this is not a spooky story. You know, yes, I heard this voice and I was working really on my own through the, you know, deeply into the camp and said, you know, because um, I thought I want to feed everyone. But then you go, how do I do that? And then I heard this voice, don't worry, everything will come. And um, so I went home and I just started to connect. So I, first of all, I called, there was three little kitchens in the camp, like ourselves. And I called all of them together and I said, I want to feed everyone. We do great work, but it's not good enough. There's hunger. You know, we opened the, the, the flat. So, you know, the, the, the pollen of the, of the marquee, 
when we opened and there was a long queue of people. And then, you know, when the meals were gone, you had to close it. That's the hardest thing ever. You have to say, I'm sorry, we have no food. And, um, oh yeah, that was heartbreaking. And uh, for example, one day we had from Holland, two they, in Holland, they make, uh, it's called poffertjes, these tiny little pancakes. Poffertjes, yeah. Yeah, poffertjes. We, we love poffertjes. God knows where they came from, but we, someone showed up with two pallets of poffertjes. So at the end of the night, you know, when we had no food left, we were just handing out bags of poffertjes for people to eat. But they were disgusting. You know, they, they're nice when you cook them. Pancakes are nice when you cook them and eat them, and not when they're in a vacuum bag for weeks. Anyway, and so I came home I, uh, here in London. So, okay, what can I do? And I just started connecting. And the most amazing things started to show up. And within two months from that, and in the beginning, it was corner shops, people from a you know refugee or migrant background giving us little bits of foods. And we were I was sending over vans and, you know, Within two months, we were sending out a lorry every week to the camp, and we kind of made a food bank where we gave all the refugees everything to cook for themselves. And I supplied the, the kitchens with food, with, with, with carrots and God knows what all. And uh, yeah, that was amazing. And we needed like 20,000 pounds a week to do that. And that came through people like all of us donating, and that all went through Facebook. You know, I'm not big on social media, but it went all through Facebook. And um, yeah, I did that for like 10 months, then the camp got dismantled and I um, I wanted to do something different. But yeah, that was a life-changing experience. And what I learned from that, because about talking about intuition, that manifestation happens. What you do is you set yourself a goal and you never, ever weave up from that goal. So my target was feed everyone in the camp. And, um, the, you know, the, the police made it very difficult. They were throwing tear gas and rubber bullets all the time. Uh, or shooting the bullets actually. You know, so there was many, many challenges, but you never ever weave up on the goal. And then everything behind you falls into place. It's absolutely, absolutely incredible. Uh, that's, a, that's an incredible story. And I, I'd heard a little bit of that, but not in so much depth. And um, there's so much ground that you covered there. Now, Philippe's been uh, generous enough to actually put a a Wikipedia link in the chat for anybody who wants to to see that. And he's asked a question, Leon, can you tell us more regarding intuition and premonition? What are the common points and differences from your opinion between intuition and premonition? Well, being Dutch, I would have to Google premonition, what it exactly means. But uh, um, Well, basically... It's all within us. It's not. It's not something outside of us. You know, I always feel it coming in like this. When, um, um, but it is intuition. Is so. It's knowing something which we think comes from another place. And of course, in many many ways, it can be explained. Which you know, it's probably not right for this call. But um, for me, it's about being as still as possible, finding that balance within, and and. Um, taking out all the distortion which we have in our life. And God, I had enough distortion in my life and telling myself for a long time that I wasn't good enough. So, you know, what you said about land is just being love, which we all are, we're all just love. So basically it's, it's about going back to that and making sure every day you work on it. And when you don't listen to your, and sometimes, and I have those situations, and I don't listen to my intuition, 
then um, you know, don't be hard on yourself and just make a mental note and go back to the place of calmness. Um, for me, it, or everything is energy. Everything is energy. So um, one book I read about five years ago is called The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. And um, he, um, he actually started a, a billion, well, without him realizing, but it became a billion dollar uh, company. And when he was, a he's in his 70s now, but when he was a student in, the, let's say, 20 in California, he made this promise to himself, he would surrender to everything that shows up in your life. So when whatever happens, surrender to it. You know, we with our minds think often that things should be another way. But when you surrender to whatever happens to you and go with the flow, then, you know, you know, you, you'll find out that the universe, the divine God, whatever you call it, knows better than we do. And um, the way I see it is whether it's premonition or intuition, you know, I uh, my first charity, the one with the children, I always said that was not my idea. That idea came through me. When I did Kelly, you know, I just had to be open. Um, for example, we, we started giving food to the refugees so they could cook for themselves. But of course, they had no way to cook. And all of the all of a sudden, out of the blue, people from, from Ireland, which is you know quite a threat from Ireland to France, said, um, we want to give you 10,000. Oh, no, they gave us a 1,000 uh, little wood burners, and we already had the wood. So they, I, we could give every uh, uh, hut in the camp, every tent, um, a wood burner and supply them with wood so they could cook the food we gave them to cook and that just showed up we, we had no idea how we we're going to do it and all of a sudden and you know in my next charity which I started because of COVID it, it went even faster so you just have to get out of the way and let the universe the, the energy come through you because I'm sure Mike you spoke to your your people about everything is energy and never ever forget absolutely that. Absolutely. And I think we'll pick up the next charity in a, in a second. Um, we've got some great stuff going on the chat here. So this is uh, from the Tao Te Ching. Um, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. When the student is truly ready, the teacher will disappear. I like that, Andrew. That's fantastic. Yeah. I've read the Tao Te Ching a long time ago, but I'd forgotten that. And then sometimes, uh, sometimes you just have to jump and grow wings on the way down. That's uh that's fantastic. And the other one is, um, which actually led me on a journey where I met you and I met everybody on this call is my old boss said to me, sometimes you've just got to grab onto somebody's coattails and go for the ride and see where it takes you. And, um, and that's, a, that's a good bit of intuitive knowledge as well. But um, as, a bridge to, as a bridge to my next question for you, uh, one of my mentors is a guy called Terry Rogers. He was the ex-chairman um, of IBM Asia Pacific on the Saatchi and Saatchi board worldwide. And in fact, I was speaking with him yesterday. He's 81 years old now, retired, um, lives, in, uh, lives in the South Island of New Zealand. I was chatting with him yesterday by actual phone because he's, he's old school. And uh, Terry told me once, Leon, he went to his um, aunt's 94th birthday. And at the time, his brother was the chairman of the BNZ Bank, which is the Bank of New Zealand, which was is a big role. And at the time, Terry had taken five years off with his wife at the time to um, sail around the world in his 75-foot yacht. And his brother said to him at the, at the um, birthday party, 
his brother said to him, Terry, you've never made anything real of your life. You've got bugger all money compared to me. You've had all the same opportunities. You know, um, all you've done is flitted around the world and worked for this and that company. And now you've invested your money in this yacht and now you're going sailing. You know, you're 65 years old at the time or something like that. When are you going to grow up? Four-year-old aunt overheard this and came across and said, it's my 94th birthday and I'm here to tell you boys something. I'd rather have all Terry's memories than all your money. Yeah. And I thought it was a fantastic bit of following your passion, following your dream. If life wants to take you here, just go and do it. And I mean, Terry did um, travel around the world with Lois, his wife, for five years on their yacht. And they had the most incredible adventures from being caught in a Force 10 hurricane um, in the North Atlantic to... Uh, having lunch on their boat uh, at Canary Wharf in London with Mike Hancock. So, um, so you know, it's a, it was a fantastic experience for, for all of us with their travels. And they had a, a blog when blogs were, you know, not really popular. I wanted to, and I think, you know, a great message coming out of this for everybody here is find your, find your heart and follow your heart. And uh, Leon, one, one sort of final, one and a half final questions, and then we'll drop into some questions. Um, tell us about your latest adventure. What are you up to right now? So, um, yeah, we have to go back to, you know, pre, pre-lockdown in the UK, which was March. Uh, we went into lockdown March 23rd, 2020. And I had been in Holland to do a consultancy, and that ended because Holland went into lockdown like a week, 10 days earlier than um, the UK. And my consultancy ended overnight. And at the time they were talking in, in Europe about closing the borders. So I thought, well, I don't want to be stuck in Holland. Because uh, I had nothing to do all of a sudden. I don't want to be stuck in Holland and, you know, and not being able to go to my children. And, you know, no one knew at the time, how is this going to happen? What's going to, you know. So I came back to England and um, that was on a Wednesday. And uh, before, so I was in Holland. Holland was absolutely quiet. There was no one on the road. Everyone was in fear. And I, I land in London, come at King's Cross with the train and the station was almost like normal. And that was the, the surrealist experience ever. And then I heard this voice saying to me, Leon, you have to do in London what you did in Kelly. And I understood straight away what that meant because I could see that London would go hungry. You know, my old industry, the hospitality industry, many workers come from all over um they live paycheck to paycheck or here in the uk many people still get paid weekly and you know of course they send lots of money home to where, wherever home is for them and you know the hospitality industry can be scrupulous so i came home and i put a post on facebook i said um i'm gonna start uh, something called compassion london london will be hungry all this rest these restaurants will be closed all the chefs at home if we work together we can feed thousands of people a day so who has a kitchen for us? And two days later, I'm in the kitchen. Someone said, well, you can have mine for a bit. And, you know, all of us thought this is going to last two, three months. And um, so um, I, uh, oh, that was on a Friday. I said, yeah. And then I put a post on Facebook. Okay, we got a kitchen. Who likes to help? And uh, some people, you know, some chefs and people I didn't know um, came and helped and we so we started cooking on March the 25th two days after lockdown and my thing was just thousands of meals a day that's what I was focused on um 
And we did. Within two weeks, we were cooking 2,000 meals a day. Um, the more people just started showing up. It was really build it and they come. Honestly, it was like that. Uh, we used in, so that was called Compassion London. Um, we were active for 14 months. In 14 months, we did all volunteers, 650,000 meals, um, all surplus food, food which otherwise gone to waste. Surplus food, but that's a different story. By the way, there's nothing wrong with it. It can be surplus for many reasons. Um, and uh, within, you know, we had six kitchens in those um, uh, 14 months. Now I'm still doing something similar. I'll come back to later. But I knew from the moment I met the person who owned the first kitchen that that was only temporarily. I knew that, um, you know, something wasn't right there. But I also knew I needed to start. And yeah, that became very difficult in that kitchen. But um, after a week, um, someone said to me, someone who I know from Calais said, Would, why Leon, this is amazing. Did you go to Wembley Stadium? Would you like that? I said, yeah. And her sister-in-law knew people in the FA board. So, you know, the FA board, the Football Association owns Wembley Stadium. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. So a week later, so we were only two weeks old. Um, there was no structure, you know, we, we, uh, we, we had a laptop and we had a very a one uh, sort of um, website page and, you know, it was still all very ad hoc, which I, by the way, love. And, you know, there was no one on the streets. London was deserted. You could drive from one side of London to the other side in like 45 minutes. Well, normally you do by three miles. <laughs> and um, anyway, the demand was huge. So I go to Wembley Stadium and meeting up, of course, the FA board wanted it, but of course, Wembley Stadium, that's a corporation, that's met hundreds of people working there, met up with one of the top people there, and the guy who runs the catering company, which is a huge global catering company, doing all the catering in Wembley, which is a massive operation. And they showed me around, and they, were, they didn't even turn on the lights. Wembley, this 90-seat size stadium was absolutely empty. There was only security guards. And um, they didn't even want to turn on the lights. So after an hour, they showed me around, asked many questions. They said, Leon, that's a great idea, but it's not going to happen. And I just saw the opportunities, this, the, lots of kitchens, but we could have maybe the mess, the big one. And they said, it's not going to happen. And, you know, I didn't prepare this. I, by that time, I was very, well, angry is probably the best word. I didn't show it because I just saw the opportunity. And these men, they just wanted to go home on furlough, being paid and not doing anything. And um, I said, yeah, but you organized the live aid in three days, didn't you? They said, yeah, we did, but that was a different time. I said, yeah, exactly. There was no WhatsApp, no um, mobile phones, no internet. I said, that was difficult. This is easy. And they said, no, 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 it's not going to happen. Then they send us an email because, of course, the FA board was on my side. And um, but of course, in the corporate world, no one can overrule anyone. And uh, they send us a, you know, um, a whole list of things we had to do, things which only established corporations can do, like health and safety documents, legal documents. We didn't have anything of that, although we did everything the way it should be done. Anyway, a month later, after lots of, well, difficult things with them, we moved into MD Stadium. And in that time, we did like 130,000 meals in one month from that kitchen. And then Wembley had to open again for football because, you know, give the, give the people uh, bread and games. So that was the government wanted that. So, um, and that really made my organization. And uh, in that year, we used over 500 volunteers, not all at once. And 
I only knew five of them before I started it. People just showed up. And again, because people ask me this often, I just kept focused, you know, my compassion was like a ship in, in, in the storm, which was COVID. And I just kept the bow of the ship wherever we were thrown. And there was many challenges. On, not on the horizon, over the horizon. The only thing I thought of helping these people because the, the need in London was and still is massive. And that brought all that magic together. It's been a wonderful experience. And um, yeah, just focus on the end. And, and whatever life throws you, surrender. You know, then when we were doing that for about half a year, so a year ago, an organis- a, a large uh, food um, charity who's very well established contacted me to build a big kitchen in London. They had funds and they wanted to do it with us. And um, so yeah, two months, well, a month ago, we opened a kitchen in East London where purpose built, we have funding, we have funding to do it for the next few years and funding is coming in where we cook 5,000 meals every day. And there was a team of 12 who are paid to do that. Lots of volunteers. And actually my role is to, um, there's many things coming out of this, you know, which is growing. Uh, my role is to uh, make it a, a template which we can build in other places as well. Leon, I have to say, I think every single person on this call, myself included, is going, oh, we need to do a bit more now. So we're sort, of, we're sort of where you were when you were a kid looking at everybody else now because, you know, I think uh, it's that's just absolutely phenomenal. And I just want to recap a couple of things, then we'll go to some questions you know, you've really trusted your instincts the whole way through. It's a big part of you. Presence is a big part of you. Intuition is a big part of you as well. And then staying balanced through the meditation work and the deep inner work that you're doing has really, um, I guess, smoothed, you know, all of the bumps. And, and nobody can do what you've done without having incredible bumps from financial hurdles to staffing hurdles to the one you just described with people who'd rather stay at home than, than help out, et cetera, et cetera. And it, I think it comes down to us as viewers and listeners here, reframing our own, own lives. I was talking with my, one of my oldest friends and he was telling Landy one day, he said, when Mike was 10 years old, he said three things. He said, when I grow up, I want to travel the world make a lot of money and do every single thing that I want to do when I think of it. And he said, you've pretty much done those things. I won't say I've kept a lot of the money I've made, but I mean, I may certainly made a lot more than I've kept like yourself. But, but I think, you know, when you have a vision and my vision's always been, if I want to do something, I mean, we're, we're doing another full length feature film at the moment in between the COVID lockdowns, you just go ahead and do it, you know, whether it's the charitable work that comes with, with life and you know that's something I don't really talk about but um, these days with too many people it's just part of what we do but when I come across somebody like you I go wow here's somebody who's actually just living everything every day let's go to some questions uh, Leon we've got about uh, eight and ten minutes left yeah and um, I'm interested hang on let me just go to a different view on my camera here so who would like to ask a question or who has a comment for uh, for us let's see who's got a hand up was that you, Melanie, that I saw raising a hand or were you just clicking your mouse? I was yep, clicking, go for I it. can ask anyway. 
So Leon, thank you so much. I loved your share and I loved what you were doing. So my, my question is what's next? Because once you achieve something, then you move on to something bigger and different and better. Do you have a plan for something that's next? No, um, my plan is to the organization. So since many, many years, I have a salaried role, which is quite weird, but I'm also very happy by that. No, my, my role is, um, I, I never planned it like that. I never have. It's not like I already know what's next. I feel that I'm 55 now and that, um, you know, I don't want to change uh, projects all the time anymore. I've done enough of that. I want to make this project really large. And I feel all, and this is, of course, you know, I feel almost as if for the first time in my life, I really have the perfect team around me to do that and the support. And that doesn't mean anything about the past, but, you know, there's an amazing fundraising team in this organization, amazing um, uh, marketing team, uh, you know, people's team, the, 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 the founders and the board have amazing connections. So we, we are extremely well funded. And I want to grow. Uh, I said to them, if you want me to run this one kitchen, um, um, then I'm not interested. But that's not what they want. We want to build more of these kitchens. But also, I have other ideas how this is a longer story, but it's not, you know, so the Felix Project, who I work for now, is London's largest surplus food charity. And they give, they repurpose surplus food and they give it to other charities. The cooking is new to them. But so they give food to charities who then give it to the people in food insecurity. Um, but that's often just giving the food. But that's not really what most in, uh, people need because they might have many challenges. They could be homeless. They could be uh, mental health issues, living in poverty. So we're really working. And I, I leave that out for now, but on many ways to improve that. And one of my big dreams is still to have in London four of five massive so, uh, social eating spaces where we repurpose surplus food where anyone can eat. All of us on this call, who I, you know, just you know take for granted that we can all afford it. And then people who can't afford it, we go to the same place. We have a great meal for not a lot of money. And where people who can't afford it eat absolutely for free, but they get exactly the same experience as we do. This is an idea which you know. There's a time I learned many years ago in Belo Horizonte in, in uh, Brazil who done it. And I really wanted to do that since my Keller days. So since uh, 2016, and I never found the resources to do it. And of course it wasn't the right timing, but now it is. And um, hopefully we can grow that idea. So um, I don't plan like that. I have that in the back of my mind. And you, yeah, what we spoke about earlier, just live every day as it come. Every day is a new beginning and then magic happens. So I'll give you another example, and I, yeah, or I leave it because then we can do more questions. Yeah, well, that's—I uh, mean, you intentionalize things, Leon, and I think that's uh, that's the really big point. And the other thing is that you know, through the work that you've done, you've already built a, a substantial network as well, and the the value, your network value is very very high. Yeah. Also, do we have any other questions uh, that anybody would ask to, like to ask Leon? I'm not seeing a hand up. So, Leon, I'm going to ask you a, a final question. Mm -hmm. And my, fi my final question, I want to thank you so much for being on our, our call today. There's, I think there's so much in this. You literally blew people away and uh, just phenomenal. But um, if you were to do everything all over again, 
what would be the one thing that you would do differently? What would be the one action that you would take that's different? Oh, I, 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 uh, when I had that football match when I was eight years old, I wouldn't have said to myself, your friends don't like you anymore. So I would have done that different and that would change the course of my life. I'm very happy where I am and I love my life, you know, with all its challenges. Because um, challenges come and go just like day and night. If you stop worrying about them, and of course, I'm not perfect. I still do that at times. I just like to think that most of the time I don't do it anymore. Um, yeah, I wish I'd, I'd done that differently. And so that's what I try to teach my children. Um, you know, they're 19 and 21, but be that example and be calm. And um, yeah, and just enjoy. I really enjoy life. All, you know, I... I always, you know, as a child, I don't know, I sometimes, uh, you know, you're scared of the night and you see these uh, shadows and you, you think it's something strange, but it might just be the leaf of a plant in your room moving. And, um, you know, you also know that it's going to be light. Well, that's the same with our challenges. Just know that they, they pass. And the less you focus on them, the, the more you focus on, you know, on the loft within, the balance, or on, on, on your big goal, they will pass then they don't seem that bad. And, you know, quiet that voice in your head. Absolutely. Now, Leon, you've got a couple of people here. By the way, you've got people on the call here um, from uh, Sweden, India, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, I saw on the call before, and Ireland um, that I can see so far. And uh, Linda says, we, we share so many touch points. You've nudged me today. To continue moving forward towards my vision through surrender and flow. Matthew said, thanks so much, Leon and Mike, for this session, all the good stuff that you do and continue to do in our world. And Moira's got a great question here. Um, I'm interested in Leon's take on intuition and the planning slash structure balance. So the balance between intuition and, and, and uh, planning for success. Let's make that the last question in the last minute of our call. Well, that uh, there is not really planning for success. It's um, it's basically what we said before. You know, take everything as it comes. And uh, you know, in Chinese wisdom, they they say you know that you have the five energy. Everything starts with why, and then what, who, when, where, and what, and then how. Sorry, how is the last energy, and that why? How did Chinese know this? Because they studied nature for thousands and thousands of years. And you, when you look at nature, you, you know, everything goes in cycles. Summer never comes before spring, never, winter never comes before um, the summer. So if you realize that and you follow those energies, then, um, um, you know, life flows. So when you're stuck in, in, in your project, in your life, go back to why. And then when you have that, go back to the what. And, you know, sometimes you will do those three, first three energies over and over again, but you will progress. I'm not good at the how, that's not me at all. Um, but I know that people around me are very good at it and they actually love it. I still don't really understand how you love detail and, and spreadsheets and things like that, but people actually do and they are as important as we are. So trust that. So um, yeah, for me, of course, you, and also about planning, you know, let's say you want to start a business and those 12 steps from what first getting the money or your partners 
and then you have to know the steps, but you don't go to step two till you've done step one. You need to know all the steps, but there's no need to do it. People around me often say, yeah, but Leon, we need to do this. I said, I know, but that's step seven or eight. We're not there yet. We haven't even done two yet. And that's very important too, because then it becomes a mess. If you don't do that, it becomes a mess. Absolutely. And uh, Niha said uh, she too believes in in intuitive and uh, positive constructive strategies, uh, sorry, energies uh, to believe in yourself. And just let's uh, let's wrap up here by, I think there were two great bits of advice. And, um, you know, it's definitely in all of our teachings, Leon, that, you know, you can't put step six before step two or step eight before step two, you know, and most entrepreneurs do. And I, I use an example. I always, at events, I get, give people my cell phone and say, unlock my phone. And they look at the code and they say, how can I do that? I said, but all the numbers are there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero. So you know all the numbers, yeah. but it's not the numbers that are a problem. It's the order in which they're in that unlocks the code. So thanks for that. And you never need to know how, because if you know who, who always knows how. That's called yeah. the deconstructive cycle yeah. of what Leon was talking about. Leon, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you when uh, when the universe allows it in person. Lundy and I both do. And yeah. in the meantime, um, if anybody wants to help you or, or get involved in any way, they can just go to your Facebook, Leon Arts. They'll find you through. Um, and somebody's put your email address in the chat as well, I believe. Yeah, I so, did. Yeah, Leon yeah. at leon-arts.com. So it's there. So thanks again. Uh, we appreciate it. And next week, folks, um, you'll be uh, with Landy Jack. So all the very, very best. Leon, thank you so much. Have thank a wonderful you, Mike. day. Everyone. It was a pleasure speaking to you again. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, thank you.